Have you ever taken on a project around the house that you just assume was a minor repair? It's gonna take you about 30 minutes. Only three days later, after 21 trips to Home Depot, you realize that it was major construction, right? And I say that because we're learning in this series that the same could be said when it comes to God taking us on as a project to change our lives. I mean, if we're honest, when most of us decided that we were gonna follow Jesus, we weren't all that interested in God overhauling our lives. You know what we were hoping for? We were hoping for a little tweak here and there. We were hoping that maybe God could somehow help us with a particular sin or a particular issue, maybe a temptation, maybe a bad habit that we couldn't kick. Maybe he could make us a better spouse, a better person. Maybe God could just make us a better friend. But God looks at our life and he says, yeah, I'm thinking complete overhaul. I think we're gonna have to start from scratch. And it's because, see, when it comes to life change, my tendency is to wanna just make me into a better version of me. I mean, if I could just make me Mike 2.0, I would be happy. The problem is that's not what God is interested in. God's goal in our lives is to bring us into alignment with the character and the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we're honest, that's a lot, for, that's a lot more than most of us signed on for when we started following Jesus. We thought we were getting into maybe a self-improvement program. But you see, we're learning that God wants to transform our lives from the inside out. And I think God is smart enough to know that that's not gonna happen. That kind of transformation is not gonna happen by just telling us to start this and stop that and do better and try harder. Because if you've been a Christian for a while, we've all tried to start and start and do and, 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 and try harder. We've all done that, but we keep running up against our own inability to actually do anything that changes our character, that changes our lives. And so last week, as we were working our way through this series, we learned that when God takes us on as a project, his desire is actually to, re to renew our minds. And to renew our minds, we learned it's a two-step process. God has to take off what is old, and he has to put on what is new. This week, Laura renewed her nails, okay? That means she had to take off the old, she had to put on the new. Maybe you want to renew your hardwood floors. You're going to have to take off the old and put on the new. Well, in the same way, God has to take off the old, and then he has to put on the new so that our minds are renewed because God, if he's gonna renew our minds, if he's gonna change our lives, we have to begin to think differently. Now, I'm gonna give you a principle that explains why this process of renewing our minds is so important, and then I'll unpack it for you. But here's the principle. <clears throat> biblical commands without biblical thinking always result in short-term obedience and long-term frustration. Let me give you that again. Biblical commands, the do's, the don'ts, the thou shalt, the thou shalt nots, all the rules, all the laws in the Bible, without biblical thinking, without understanding why God gave us these rules and these laws, always results in short-term obedience. We do okay for a while, but long-term frustration. And it's because when we get right down to it, no matter how hard we try to live the Christian life, we just aren't able to pull it off, and as a result, we live our lives with this constant sense of frustration, this constant sense of failure. And so the reason that God is so focused on renewing our minds is this, God knows that it's by changing our thinking, it knows it's by changing our actual belief system that he's gonna have the greatest leverage in changing how we actually live our lives. In other words, this is how God is going to bring us into the alignment with the image of Jesus Christ. That's his goal for each of us. By the way, let me just say this. If you're new to this series or you missed a week or two, uh, this is one of those that I would really encourage you to go online, listen to the sermons that you've missed. Uh, it's way too much to review in this series. Each week builds on the next. But as I said, we're talking about renewing the mind. You gotta take something off. You gotta put something on. This weekend, we're gonna focus on that first step. We're gonna focus on taking off the old, which means we have to identify the old attitudes. We have to identify the old mindsets. We have to identify the old lies that we believed all of our 
our lives, many since birth, and we have to strip those things away so we can replace it with new attitudes, new mindsets, new lies with truth. That's the process of renewing the mind. So if you have your Bible this weekend, turn with me to Colossians chapter three. If you don't, that's okay. We're gonna put the verses up on the screen. But Paul tells us what this renewal of taking off the old, putting on the, the, the new looks like. He says in Colossians chapter three, verse eight, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Look at, since you have taken off your old self with his practices. So basically Paul says this, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't live the way you used to live. And we're like, well, why, Paul? Why can't we live the way we used to live? And Paul says, you can't live the way you used to live because you're not the person that you used to be. And it's because when we make this decision to follow Jesus, when we make this decision to accept God's free gift of salvation, understand we gain a whole new identity. Paul talked about this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. He is a brand new creature. The old has gone, the new is here. And since the new is here, Paul says, you can't live the way you used to live. You can't lie, you can't cheat, you can't slander. And it's because you're not the person that you used to be. Now, if you go back to Colossians chapter three, pick up verse nine, Paul says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, in the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, understand, we're brand new people because we've, made, we've been made holy. We've been made righteous in the sight of God. That is our new position. Again, we talked about this in the first week of the message. But for our brain to catch up so that our behavior begins to match our position, we've got to learn to think differently. And if that's going to happen, our minds have to be renewed. We've got to take off the old way of thinking. We've got to put on a new way of thinking. And the reason that this is so important is because, think about it this way, our beliefs shape. They don't control, but our beliefs shape our attitudes and our actions. And I think we all know that. For example, what you believe about me as a person shapes your attitude and your behavior toward me. I mean, if you only talk to Laura, you probably won't like me a whole lot and you'll treat me accordingly. But if you only talk to my mom, you'll love me unconditionally. You will probably even send me flowers. I don't know, see? What you believe about your spouse, it will shape your attitude and your behavior toward your spouse. In fact, what you believe about anything or anyone shapes your attitude and your behavior toward that particular person or that particular issue. I'll give you an example. Duke versus Carolina. I think I've made it clear. I hate Carolina. But why? Why? Because that's the way I was raised. That's my belief system. My dad took me to my first game at Wallace Wade Stadium when I was about five. He took me to Cameron Indoor when I was about four. I've heard the fight song. We even tell you where to go in our fight song because you're such bad people, right? So we know that we're the good guys, Duke fans. You're the bad guys. Therefore, we have to hate you. That's my belief system. You have to hate us too. That's your belief system. A few years ago, I got into a quandary. Bush Davis was coaching Carolina. And he was attending Hope Community Church. He was a member here, and him and I got to be really good friends. So he called me up, and he said, listen, in a few weeks, Notre Dame is coming to town. And I was wondering, would you be willing to come to the hotel the Friday night before the game where the team stays? Would you speak to the team? Would you get them ramped up, jacked up? Would you get them ready to go out on that field and defeat Notre Dame? I'm like, I don't know that I want to do that. <laughs> right? But it was Butch. 
It was Butch. I said, sure. So I go to the hotel. He gets them all in a big ballroom. And I go, and guess what I give him? David and Goliath. Here we go, baby. And I brought the fire. I mean, I had them standing up and shouting. It was like a revival, right? And I'm telling you, they were so jacked up and so pumped up. The next day, October the 11th, 2008, Carolina took the field and they beat Notre Dame. One of my biggest regrets in life. <laughs> right, right, right. But here's my thing. <clears throat> I came home after talking to the team, and Laura said, so how did it go? And I said, honestly, honey, it was incredible. Those were some of the nicest young men I've ever met in my life. They shared their story. There was a couple of them that I prayed with. They gave me hugs, these big old defensive linemen, offensive linemen, you know, just big kitty cats, you know. And I said, I feel bad, I've hated them so much. Well, Laura doesn't understand the whole tension between Duke and Carolina, she thinks it's stupid. And she, so immediately she went into, so what did you learn from this experience? <laughs> and I'm learning, don't hate the team, they're nice. It's their fans that are so obnoxious, hate them. See, that's what I learned from See, But I believe, what I believe about UNC, what's it, it, it shapes my behavior, my attitude. We all know it's, that principle's true. In the same way, as long as we believe incorrectly about God, sex, money, finances, marriage, whatever it is, it is going to shape our attitude and it's gonna shape our behavior toward those issues. Now here's the big problem, in case you haven't watched the news lately. We live in a world that specializes in marketing misinformation about our God. And this misinformation has been passed down from generation to generation, sometimes, many times, by well-meaning churches, many times by well-meaning parents, and what was passed down to us, it shapes our belief system. I'll give you an example, racism. Nobody's born a racist. You wanna stop racism? Quit raising racists, see? We pass down that belief system. My point is this, we draw our conclusions about life based on information that's just not true, it's just not accurate. Now the challenge is this, when you become a Christian, that does not automatically change. Those thoughts, those attitudes, those beliefs don't automatically go away. And consequently, we continue to live our lives based on beliefs that just aren't true. And so God, and have you guys figured out yet, he is so smart, right? God says, this, I am not gonna waste my time saying, you'd better stop. You'd better start because it just doesn't work. God knows that we develop attitudes, behaviors based on what we believe. And so God decided to deal with us at the fundamental belief system level. And God wants to go to work in our lives. And God wants to strip away all the lies, all of the mis misinformation, and he wants to replace those lies. He wants to replace all of that misinformation with truth so that as his followers, we can learn to believe correctly. And as we learn to believe correctly, in other words, as our minds are being renewed, our resistance to God's will for our life diminishes. Because as we learned last weekend, renewal breaks down our resistance to God's rule in our lives. But I'm telling you, if that's going to happen, it's on us. It's on us to identify the lies and the misinformation because remember, we're not transformed by reciting prayers, reading the Bible, attending church services, singing songs, or even joining a small group. All good things, all things we should be doing, all things that God can actually use in the transformation process, but we're actually transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means we have to take off the old, we have to put on the new. We gotta stop believing the lies that we live our life by.
Let me just point out a few lies that I've learned over the years we live our life by. Here's one, the Panthers will still make the playoffs. That's a lie. No, I'm just kidding. We don't live our life by that. Just throw that one out. Here's a real one. As soon as I accomplish what I want to accomplish, I'll have peace and joy in my life. Or let's change it this way. As soon as I accumulate what I want to accumulate, I will have peace and joy in my life. I'm telling you, that's a lie. Life doesn't work that way, and deep down inside, we know it's a lie. But you know what? We still allow our lives to be directed and driven by that kind of thinking. Here's another one. It's my responsibility to fix my spouse. I've been doing a lot of marriage counseling for a lot of years, and you would be amazed at how many people believe it's their responsibility to fix their spouse. And what do you do? You give them CDs. You know, you give them podcasts to listen to, books. You give them suggestions. You tell them what Pastor Mike said in his message this weekend. And you do it because, see, somewhere along the way, you got the idea that it's your job to fix your spouse. But I got to tell you, that's not true. It is a lie. In fact, the more you believe that lie, the worse it's going to get. I'm telling you, in 36 years of marriage counseling, I have never met anybody who said, I fixed her. I fixed her. Or you know what? We used to have a lot of marriage problems, but I fixed them. You know why you'll never hear that story? It's a lie. And it's a lie we believe. Husbands, let me tell you something. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. Let me tell you though, men, if your wife doesn't submit to you, that's none of your business. That's between her and God. Wives, if your husband refused to be the spiritual leader of your home, that's none of your business. That's between him and God. It is not your responsibility to fix your spouse. But some of you operate your marriage by that lie. Here's another one. Rejection is the path to restored relationships. Rejection is the path to restored relationship. In other words, I would conclude by observing how many of you handle your relationships that you believe that rejection is the way to get a relationship restored. By the way, how, why do you reject someone in a relationship? It's because you want to punish them. Why do you want to punish them? Because they hurt you. And what do you want to see accomplished? You want revenge. You want to make them pay. You want to pay them back. Now here's the problem. You know, you'll think things like, I'm having relationships, problems with my friend, so I'm gonna reject her. I'll show her. I'm having relationship problems with my, my friend. I'm gonna reject him. I'm gonna punish him. That'll show him. Now here's the problem with that kind of thinking. The Bible makes it very, very clear that as adults in relationships, it is never our job to punish another adult. Did you know that? As adults in relationships, it is never our job to punish another adult. Listen to what Paul wrote over in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's God's job to avenge. It's God's job to punish if punishing. It's God's job to discipline if someone needs to be disciplined. And when you get involved in that process, you actually short circuit. You take on God's role and you short circuit what God may want to do in that relationship. But see, you think that way because somewhere in your past, you bought into a lie that by punishing someone, rejecting someone, that's the best way that everything's going to turn out okay. I'm telling you, it is a lie. And these are just a few of the examples that we live our, the lies that we live our life by. It's kind of the tip of the iceberg. 
And I'll just tell you, you can go to church and sing songs and read the Bible and join a small group, but until, until we get rid of the garbage, that's what I'll call it, until we get rid of the garbage that shapes our behavior and our attitudes, we are prisoners of the lie. And that's why God says, I'm not going to waste my time by just telling you to be better. I want to renew your mind, and to renew your mind, i got to take off the old. So in the time that remains this weekend, I want to give you three things that will help you identify the lies that you may be believing in your life. These are the lies that you, the lies that you operate from in your life. Because I'm telling you, until we can identify the lies that fuel our attitudes, fuel our behaviors, we're never gonna make any progress. We'll never become the individuals that one, God wants us to be, and two, we want to be. Now, I'm just gonna warn you. The next few minutes is gonna sound like you're back into psychology 101, okay? But understand, this is like a two-part message. Think of it that way. This is the first part. Next week, we'll have part two. So this is kind of the introduction to where we're going next week where we talk about putting on the new. We gotta take off the old so that we can put on the new. Let me give you these three suggestions that will help you identify the lies you live your life by. I think they'll be helpful. And then I'm gonna tell you a story from my life, how I, how I kind of learned this the hard way. Here's the first one. Examine the excuses you tell yourself to justify your wrong behavior. In other words, if you refuse to live according to biblical truths, rules, concepts, principles, then examine the lies that you tell yourself, the excuses to justify your wrong behavior. Because see, we all whisper things to ourselves like, I know it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway because. Because. And so we need to examine the excuses we use to rationalize our wrong behavior. In fact, let me give you several excuses that maybe you've used in the past. My guess is most of us have used them in the past. Attached to every one of these excuses is a lie. I want, to help, I want you to help identify the lie. Here's the first excuse we've used. I wasn't the only one. You ever use that? Yeah, I did it, but I wasn't the only one. Now, what's the lie behind that? The lie is simply this. If everybody else is doing it, must not be wrong. If everybody else is doing it, must not be any consequences. In other words, God doesn't care what I do as long as everybody else is doing it. Now, let me ask you a question. You don't really believe that, do you? I mean, when you stand before God, do you really believe that argument's gonna hold water? Everybody else was doing it. You know? Can you imagine God standing there with the book of your life? Well, I noticed here, there's, I said don't do this. Made that very clear. But I noticed you did it over and over and over again. Why? Everybody else was doing it. In fact, God watched this. Hey, how many of you behind me waiting to have your time with God? How many of you did this too? Look, look at how many, everybody was doing it, God. See, but see, here's the thing. Behind everybody else is doing it, it's a lie that supports that behavior. Yeah, we're having sex, we're not married. Everybody else is doing it. Yeah, we're drinking too much, but we're not getting caught. But everybody else is doing it. You see how we just, everybody else is doing it? Here's another one. I don't see any harm in it. Ever said that? I don't see any harm in it. You know what the lie is? The lie is if you don't see any harm in it, there must not be any harm in it. The problem is when you think that way, you, you've basically confused yourself with God and you're, you're basically saying, I know what the Bible says. I know what the rules are, but you know what? I think I'm as smart as God and since I don't see any harm in it, there must not be any harm in it. But see, you, you, you don't really believe that. I know you don't believe that, it's a lie. Here's another one. I'll just try it once. What's the lie? The lie is this, if you only do certain sins one time, there are no consequences. I mean, do you really believe that? Oh, you don't believe that. But that's the premise behind the lie. Here's another one, who's going to know? What's the lie behind that? 
Well, if nobody knows, there aren't any consequences. If nobody knows, then it must not be wrong. If nobody knows, it must be okay. But do you really believe that? See, I can guarantee you that you don't ever remember making the conscious decision to believe that lie, but you find yourself operating based on the lie. Here's the big one. This one hits all of us. She deserves it. He deserves it, right? What's the lie? The lie is I need to treat people the way they deserve to be treated. That's a lie. That's not true. I mean, God doesn't do that with us, right? It's just a lie. I mean, how did God treat us? You remember last week we talked about crawling up on the altar and, and presenting yourself as a living sacrifice? What was the motivation behind that? You remember? God's mercy. God's mercy displayed in our lives is what makes us want to crawl up on the altar and give him our lives, our soul, body, mind, everything. It's just a reasonable, logical response to God's mercy in our lives. What was God's mercy in our lives? Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were yet sinners, not running to God, running from God, he said, I'm gonna extend mercy to you anyway, and I'm gonna give my son to die on your behalf so you can be reconciled back into a relationship with me. Mercy. And then when Jesus came, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, what did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You want to be shown mercy? I guarantee you this, there'll be a time in your life where you will want to be shown mercy. You'll be like, show me mercy, 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 show me the mercy, right? Right? Jesus said, then you better show mercy. And if that wasn't clear enough, James says in James 2, 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. How about that? Judgment with no mercy. If you're not merciful to other people, expect judgment, not mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Revenge doesn't triumph over judgment. Anger and punishment doesn't triumph over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But I gotta tell you, whenever you begin to rationalize your behavior, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is really behind my thinking? And often you will begin to recognize the lie that supports your attitude and your behavior. And I gotta tell you, whenever you begin to expose the lies, you will be amazed at how the temptations in your life, the attitude, the behaviors that have bound you to the past begin to loosen their grip. But it will only happen as you get to the place where you expose the lie. That's why Jesus made the statement he made in John 8, 32. He said, then, then, and we'll look at more of this in a couple of weeks, then, after you expose the lie, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, we think, I'm just gonna try harder, and by trying harder, I'll experience freedom. I'm gonna get some counseling, I'm gonna do this, I'm just gonna try hard, it doesn't work. Once you expose the lie that you believe, the truth will make you free. Hey people, this is good stuff and it's free, I hope you're writing this down. So, examine the excuses you tell yourself to justify your wrong behavior. Next, examine the areas in your life where you tend to overreact. Let me make it a little clear for some of you. Examine the areas of your life where you are overly sensitive. And I'll tell you why, it's because more often than not, there's a lie. There's misinformation that supports those emotions. I mean, do we have any people here who are overly sensitive? Just raise your hand. Yeah, not, not a very good shot. Okay, let's do this. If you're sitting close to someone who's overly sensitive, raise your hand. Yeah, a lot more there. Okay, I, th I think I proved my point there. Okay, elbows are going everywhere. <laughs> okay, generally speaking, generally speaking, and I, I know we all have overly sensitive people in our lives, and we, 
You don't want to crack the eggs, right? Because you just don't know what's going to happen. Generally speaking, two things cause overreaction and oversensitivity. Fear and pain. Fear and pain. And it's not physical pain, it's emotional pain. And most of the time, most of the time, that fear and pain is supported by a lie. But we never get to the bottom of what supports that fear and emotional pain. I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, you're going to discover that it's the result of something in your life, an area in your life where you are believing a lie. By the way, let me just ask you, do you know what often supports fear in our lives? It's the lie or the belief that God has lost control. If you're one of those people who are just paralyzed by fear, I guarantee you, you are buying into the lie that God has lost control. Do you know how I know that? It's because I've been around people in circumstances that are absolutely terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I mean, their world literally is crumbling beneath their feet. And yet they had incredible peace. Do you know why? It's because they had come to grips with the fact God is in control. God is in control. And because of that peace, they weren't controlled by their fear. You see, here's the lie. God has lost control. I am on my own. I've got to do something. I've got to take matters into my own hands. But I tell you, when people come to grips with the fact that God is in control, their fear doesn't control them anymore. It's the same way with emotional pain when you've been hurt. And because of the result of your hurt, you're overly sensitive, right? Or maybe you're angry, or maybe you're just hard to get along with. And you have people that love you that are close to you, and they keep pointing it out, but your response is always the same, I'm just fine. Leave me alone. If you tell me I'm angry one more time, I'll punch you in the throat. Say, I'm not angry, right? Do you know what supports all of that? Basically two lies. Here's the first lie. I just don't believe I have a problem. It's a lie. You're in denial. Second, I have to be this way until the person that hurt me apologizes, exhibits change, and then they make things right. That's a lie. And if you live by that lie, you will live your entire life in bondage. But I'm telling you, there is incredible freedom when you come to grips with the truth that you don't have to be a hostage to what other people have done to you. According to the Bible, the truth, you can forgive. And I can tell you from experience, forgiveness is the most liberating of all truths. But the reason that you're being held hostage to your emotions and the reasons you're so angry and the reasons maybe that you're so overly sensitive is because somewhere in your past, you began to believe the lie, this is unresolvable until so-and-so takes responsible responsibility for what happened. And then they've got to come to me and they've got to beg for forgiveness. And then I'm going to put them on probation for a while to see if they've really changed. And then maybe we'll have a relationship. That's a lie. You can resolve it regardless of what somebody else does to you or says to you. But see, some of you, you've been carrying around hurt for years. It's not just layers anymore. It's stacks of layers. And now when you walk around, you, you see yourself as a victim. I want you to understand that's not true. And your heavenly father wants to set you free. But you got to take off the old. You got to stop believing the lie. Examine the areas in your life where you tend to overreact or where you're overly sensitive. Here's the third one. Examine the temptations to which you are most susceptible. 
Examine the temptations in your life where you're most susceptible. Think about the areas of temptation that just keep dragging you down time after time after time. And what you will discover most of the time is that behind those temptations, there's a lie. There's something that you're believing about yourself that just isn't true. And that's why you keep falling to that same temptation over and over again. You continue to believe the lie. And you're sorry, and you've confessed it, and you, you've begged God for deliverance, but you keep falling to the same thing. The truth is this, God wants to set you free by not but not just by giving you willpower he wants to set you free by exposing the lie that supports that behavior because I want you to know just as truth sets us free from sin lies enslave us to sin examine the temptations to which you are most susceptible now I'm going to tell you a story and I hope you won't leave the church but I'm going to tell you okay Years ago, over 40 years ago, and uh, I, met, I met Laura, and I fell in love. I mean, within a few weeks, I told her I loved her. One night, when we were walking back to her dorm, I gave her the most romantic proposal you can imagine. I said, you wouldn't want to marry me, would you? <laughs> my confidence has always been strong, one of my strong suits. But as I got to know Laura, uh, you know, we would talk and, you know, we're, we're just in that dating where everything's just an adventure. You're learning something new every day. And, but then after a while, you know, I'm putting this picture together in my head. Here I grew up in East Durham, right? And she grew up in Southern California, Orange County, up in the hills. Told me about the dream home that her dad had built for her mom, the swimming pool. One time she said, yeah, I didn't have bicycles. Because we lived on three acres of avocado trees. Listen, three acres in, in Orange County, California, that's a freaking ranch, people. You know what I'm saying? But, but, but she said, we didn't have, because the, the hills were too steep. I had mini bikes, and I had one for my friend when they came over. And we rode mini bikes through the hill. So anyway, as we're getting to know each other, and I'm, met over, I'm just crazy in love with her, I lied to her. And I made it sound like I was from a family that had money and influence, too. Well, we got engaged. It didn't take but one trip to East Durham. <laughs> to realize that I had lied to her. And uh, she's pretty devastated and angry, uh, hurt. Um, and it killed me. It killed me to, to think that I had done that to her. But even as a young 18-year-old girl, she was mature enough that she allowed mercy to triumph over judgment, and we worked through it, and we got married, and we're, we're heading into our 39th year, and so be it. But then a few years later, 24, at the age of 24, Laura's 21, I became a pastor. Didn't want to be. Didn't, did worst job in the world, I thought. May still be. But um, I became one. I became one. And then I went to seminary. And while I'm going to seminary, uh, I'm taking a class with Neil Anderson, who a lot of this stuff we're talking about this weekend, I learned from him, and he wrote books like Bondage Breaker and all those kinds of books. But we were talking about this in class, and he's talking about you, you gotta identify, you gotta help people identify the lies in their life that they believe that have shaped how they live their life, because I never quite got over what I did, how stupid that was. And it was more like, why? There was no way that was sustainable. What was I hoping to get, why? 
So, so Neil was kind of, not only was he my professor, he, because I was such a young pastor and I didn't have a clue what I was doing, I spent probably more time in his office than I did in classrooms trying to find out how I handle situations, things like that. And I told him, I said, man, what we've been talking about, it just, it's like driving me nuts. I said, I don't know why, why would I do that? What's wrong with my character that would make me do that? And he says, well, Mike, somewhere in your life you believed a lie. And you gotta figure out what that lie is. And he started asking me questions. And it just started opening up my head, scary place. And this is, this is, this is basically what it came down. This sounds so stupid, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I had my first pseudo date when I was in the ninth grade. Went on a church hayride. Don't ever let your kids go on a church That's a <laughs> den of iniquity, church hayrides. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> but on that hayride with this girl, I still remember her name, Sharon, we got to get out of the hayride, and this is our youth group. We're walking down this road. We're beside a reservoir or something. It was somewhere over in Durham. I don't remember exactly where. But as we're walking down this road, she reaches down and holds my hand. It was like electricity went through my entire body. I was like, we're married. We're practically married. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I went home that night. You know how you have a dream that you wake up and you go back to sleep and you keep having the dream? All night it was us on this hayride, holding hands. In fact, I told you I was poor. Not only was I poor, not only did my, me and my brother, who was six years younger than me, share a room, we shared the same bed. I woke up in the middle of the night holding my brother's hand. That's how, that's, I'm, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. I was holding my, I'm like, this is sick. This is wrong. We got to get separate beds, you know, and, and uh, I go to school on Monday. This brand new girlfriend, Sharon, would not give me the time of day. So I asked her friend, what's going on? She said, what do you mean? I said, she held my hand on the hayride. It was her idea, not mine. She said, oh, she's trying to make you jealous. And she mentioned a guy's name, named Dennis. She's trying to make him jealous. He was walking right behind her. You know, the guy with the Mustang and the nice, ah, boom, you know. But I, I didn't really have a whole lot to do with, with girls in school, and maybe for that reason. So then I go to college. And I have a friend, he's, well, I think, three years younger than me, and he has a sister who's there. She's a year younger than me. And he says, we should go out. And we go out, and we hit it off, okay. And, and you know, again, never really a whole lot of experience in the romantic world. I asked her to marry me. <laughs> she said, yes. She's stupider than I am, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And, and, but here's the thing. Her parents then came down to visit me. Her dad was kind of a big wig with General Motors. And they, they took us out to this steak, this steak restaurant. Now understand, nicest place I'd ever been was Shoney's Big Boy, and maybe twice, right? So we go to the steakhouse and this really arrogant waiter comes out with like a, a wooden board with a, a, a cut of meat on it. And he's going on, he's very pompous and arrogant about how great this, I mean, this, this meat was, is like what my dad makes in a month, right, at home. And, and of course, you know, her dad's the big shot. Oh, we're going to have that. We're going to have that. So the, I'm st he's standing there beside me and he says, sir, we'll start with you. And he takes a knife and he puts it at the end of the meat and he just starts sliding it up. And I'm like, what the heck's he doing? He's sliding a knife up a piece of meat. And I just like, and so he did it again. And, slid up. and I'm like, thank you. And then finally her dad says, he wants you to stop the knife at where you want the meat cut, that'll be the thickness of your steak. And everybody kind of dropped their head and started laughing and elbowing each other. And I'm like, oh man. So I, he barely moved the knife. I said, there, 
It was like a piece of bologna. I got like a piece of bologna, you know. Still costs a hundred bucks. But anyway, so I went within a couple of weeks. Um, her parents talked to her. We were having some issues, I guess, but from that night. But she said, she basically, they basically told her, He's, that guy would never make you happy. End of engagement. So, so Neil said, uh, he said, Mike, you know what? You, you've been living your life with this inferiority, and I still suffer with it, I'll just be honest with you guys. I probably come across as I'm, I'm not insecure, but if, Laura, if I let Laura speak one weekend, she says, he says, you've been living your whole life believing this lie. You've been living the last few years of your life thinking that you're inferior. You bought into a lie that because of your background, because of your family's financial status, you just bought into this lie that you would never be good enough for anybody. And once you expose the lie, you gotta bring the truth in and realize that you are wonderfully and incredibly made by God. And we had that conversation. But once I finally came to terms with that lie and light began to shine on that issue in my life, all my insecurities aren't gone by any stretch of the imagination. That doesn't bother me anymore. I can sit here this weekend and tell you, man, I grew up poor as dirt. We didn't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of. You know what we did for vacation one summer? This is the only summer vacation I remember. We got up one morning about 5.30 in the morning, got in the back of the station wagon, drove to Boone, went to Tweetsie, and got in the car and drove home. That was our summer vacation. And that used to embarrass me when all my friends would go to the beach for the week or the mountains for the week. But now I look back, I think I'm actually better for it. I see how you raise those spoiled brats that you're raising, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm doing better than they're ever gonna do. I can tell you that right now, right? But my point is, it's just not an issue anymore. And that's just one area. We don't have time for me to tell you all my issues, right? But I'm telling you, for that kind of thing to happen, God had to show me how I had taken this one event and how I had misinterpreted it. And as a result, I believed a lie about myself for years and years and years. I'm telling you, there's power in identifying the lies that we hide behind that result in our attitudes and our behaviors. And that's why God says, I want to take off the old and I want to put on the new. Don't you want that? Let me give you a great verse. You can memorize this. I won't tell you the second part of it. It will scare you too much. But let me give you the first part. I'll, I'll share the rest of it with you in a couple of weeks. Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep falsehoods and lies far from me. Keep falsehoods and lies far from me. Let me ask you a question in closing. What falsehood and lies are behind the temptations that continue to trip you up? What falsehood and lies do you hide behind to justify your bad attitude or maybe your inappropriate behavior? I'm telling you, if you will take the time to identify them, if you will call them what they are, lies, you will be positioned for God's truth to set you free. But it will only happen. It will only happen when you allow God to renew your mind. Now, this is part one. Next week's part two. Okay, next time's part two as we talk about putting on the new. But you can't do that to identify the lies that need to be removed. We have a ministry here at Hope called Unhindered. We have trained counselors who can sit down with you and, in a very similar way, take you through the process that Dr. Anderson Neal took me through and help you identify the lies so that you can 
replace them with truth. Unhindered. You can go to our website. You can contact the office. You can get a personal appointment, and they can start down that journey with you. But it, but it could be life changing. You'll know the truth, and the truth is set you free. But to get there, you got to recognize what the lies are you're believing, and how they're impacting your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time together. This is a tough one because every one of us, there's something in our lives that we believe that's not true, but it, it shapes our belief system and it impacts the decisions we make. And Father, we've battled it for years and we can even look back and see how we've harmed ourselves in the process. We can see times when we were just disgusted with ourselves and we couldn't understand why we couldn't change and why do we keep doing these things and why do these relationships keep ending and why can't I hold that job and why can't I keep a friend? And It's because there's lies that we bought into that shaped who we are. So Father, I pray that in this process of taking off the old, putting on the new, that we can identify them once and for all because when we do that, then you tell us, then, this, and then you say, the truth you'll know, and it'll set you free. Deliver us from bondage. Free us up to fly, to soar, to be the people that you created us to be. In your name we pray, amen.